Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 14. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning, Father, to be our teacher and our guide. We pray, Father, that you would be pleased to speak to us through your word. We pray, Father, that you would open our hearts to understand and that you would open up our minds to perceive And that's, Father, this would not just be an academic exercise, but Father, you would change us through your word, that you would accompany your word with the work of your Holy Spirit, that indeed, Father, you would accomplish all that you purpose for this reading of your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. This morning we come to the sixth. This is the sixth message already. It's hard to believe that we've been studying spiritual warfare now for six weeks. Uh, but this is the sixth message in this, uh, in this study. And I, I suppose there'll probably be two or three more messages before we're uh, down to verse 20. But uh, just as a matter, a quick review of where we've been and also to try to bring some of our visitors up to, uh, up to speed to where we are. Uh, you'll notice way back in verse 10, the word finally. Uh, you'll recall in the first message, I made a lot of noise about that word finally. What does that tell us? It tells us this is Paul's last exhortation uh, in the, uh, his letter to the Ephesians. And we want to always keep the context in mind here. Who is Paul speaking to? If you turn back a page with me or so to chapter 1 and verse 1, Uh, We are not left in any doubt as to who Paul is speaking to. He's speaking to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, there's a lot of confusion over that. Uh, What is meant by to the saints? Uh, uh, To the saints are those who have embraced Christ in saving faith. The Greek word is hagios. And, you know, if you kind of keep one eye on verse 1 there and you keep... Put another eye on chapter 5 and verse 26. Uh, Here we're told that the work of uh, Christ Jesus is so that he might sanctify uh, his church, having cleansed her by the watching of water with the word. And that word sanctify actually is is a form of the word hagios. Hagios are the saints. Hagiazo is the exercise of making sinners into saints. Who's Paul writing to? He's writing to sinners who Jesus has come for, who Jesus has given a new heart to, who Jesus has opened the eyes, he's opened the mind so that we might embrace the things of Christ Jesus. That's who Jesus is speaking to. Now, this is important for this reason. 
Uh, We're born into this world, as David tells us in Psalm 51, for example, that in my mother's womb I was conceived in sin, he says. We're born into this world, into Satan's camp. We don't like to think of it that way. I uh, would have probably been offended had someone said that to me once upon a time in my life, that I was born in Satan's camp, that I was a, a servant of the evil one. That would have been highly offensive to me, but that's the teaching of Scripture. It's the clear teaching of Scripture. And while we are in Satan's camp, we are AWOL from the Lord's. Now, when Jesus comes into Satan's camp, into the strong man's house, if you will, to use Jesus' very own words, when he comes in and he delivers sinners from Satan's camp and then transports them into his own camp, guess what? When we're brought into Christ's camp, we're now AWOL from Satan's. And when that happens, Satan comes after his people He comes after God's people with a viciousness that uh, is really almost incomprehensible to us. And that's why Paul uh, says to us in Ephesians 6 and verse 10, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Now we spent two messages on all of that. We spent one message looking at really the the strength. Uh, Paul's telling us to be strong. As 21st century Americans, we like that. That's cool. Let's be strong. But now it's not like we think it is. It actually means be strengthened. It's passive. Paul is calling us to be strengthened. To be strengthened in what? To be strengthened in the power of the Lord. That's what he's calling us to be strengthened in. To be strengthened in, and, and we saw that we're to be strengthened in the, resurrect, the resurrection power and the ascension power of the Lord. And then we, in our third message, we looked... But this idea of putting on the whole armor of God, what is that? That is putting on Christ Jesus, isn't it? It's putting on Christ. Now, we can't put on Christ until we've put off the old. And why I say that? Because it's really commonplace in the church to try to put on both. Where we say, you know, I'm going I'm to wear a little bit of the world and I'm going to wear a little bit of Jesus. That's not going to work, is it? It won't ever work. No. Listen, there's not one of us that's going to, work, going to walk with Christ perfectly. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about the failings, the common garden variety failings of Christ's people as we wrestle with the remnant of sin that's still in our life. What I'm talking about is when we merely mentally assent to these truths, in order to be a hagios, we have to do more than mentally assent to the truth. You see, we can mentally assent to all these truths and we can say to ourselves, yes, I believe Jesus walked the earth. I believe Jesus lived a perfect life. I believe he was crucified. I believe on the third day he was raised. I believe that he is the right hand of God the Father Almighty ruling. I believe all that stuff and yet our minds are still fixed and our hearts are still fixed on our paychecks. <laughs> Our hearts are still in our homes. Our hearts are still in our cars. Our hearts are whatever your fancy might be. It's not going to work. In fact, this message is not even for us if that's our current disposition. Because we're not even in the war. The battle doesn't start until we're AWOL from Satan's kingdom. 
That's when the battle starts. But once we leave Satan's kingdom, by God's grace, for God's kingdom, and there are only two to choose from, by the way. We're in one or we're in the other. Once we leave Satan's kingdom and we enter into God's kingdom, that's when the war begins. And that's why the Apostle Paul tells us we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And the whole idea of this is that we may be able to stand. If you look at verse 11, see that phrase, schemes of the devil. In the third message, we looked at names for the devil. We were looking down kind of systematically, looking through the scriptures, looking at various names of the devil. And from there, we learned a lot about his his strategies. And in the fourth message, we looked at schemes of the devil, one scheme in particular, the scheme of affliction. And last week, we were looking at this whole idea of wrestling against, not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against these spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And one of the things we wanted to see is we're not wrestling against impersonal social political forces here. We're wrestling against personal evil demonic beings. And I'll tell you what one of Satan's strategies uh, is a very popular strategy today is when you hear someone talking the way I'm talking right now is to say, listen to this guy. I mean, he's going to have us believe that there are demons running around. What's he going to talk about next? Leprechauns? Poltergeists? Does he believe in ghosts? Satan flourishes when he's ignored. Remember, I brought that out last week. As we have adopted this whole modern scientific attitude towards demonology, what has happened? He has flourished. He has flourished. As I brought out, Joel Beakey in his real helpful little book entitled Fighting Satan references that one author estimates that there are more than 500 satanic groups in the United States with a constituency of Perhaps around 10,000 people. That's amazing, isn't it? He flourishes when he's ignored. The Apostle Paul is warning us. He's warning the saints. Why? Because the saints are AWOL from Satan's camp. And now that they're AWOL, he's going to come after them. Satan hates everything that God loves. And now we come to really the idea of the whole armor of God, and namely taking up the whole armor of God. What I want to do with our time this morning is really begin looking at two particular pieces. If you look at verse 14 with me, notice the word stand, therefore. That's the fourth occurrence of the word stand. Now, the whole goal here is to be able to stand. You know, we find the first one in verse 11, we're to stand against the schemes of the devil. In verse 13, we're to withstand in the evil day and then stand firm at the end of verse 13. And then 14, stand Uh, Therefore, you see that word stand appearing four times. Whenever the biblical authors do that, we can quickly recognize they're emphasizing something. And Paul's also emphasizing the word against. You see the word against there, how many times it's happening. We're to stand against the schemes of the devil. Uh, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. You see that word against? And in an earlier study, we were looking at that idea of wrestling, weren't we? That idea of wrestling, you know, this vigorous wrestling 
against these spiritual forces of evil so that we may be able to stand. And the Apostle Paul in verse 14 reminds us one more time that the goal here is to stand. It's to stand. How are we to do this? Uh, well, we're to put on the whole armor of God. What is the whole armor of God? Well, in one sense, it's putting on Christ Jesus. But more specifically, verse 14, it's putting on the belt of truth. Having put on the belt of truth. Now, what is that? What is exactly the belt of truth? Now, some of us may recall maybe being in a Sunday school class or maybe being in a Bible study or being in a church camp or something, and uh, these these verses are taught, and you, you get the diagram, you know, that has anyone ever seen the diagram of the Roman soldier, you know, and then there's a, there's a helmet on his head, and there's a, you know, there's a little caption next to it, and this is the helmet of salvation, and then you have the breastplate of righteousness, and then you have the shield of faith, and the sword of the spirit, and the shoes fitted, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, and if you look down at verse 20, the apostle Paul tells us in verse 20 that he is an ambassador in chains, do you see that? And in chapter 4, verse 1, he says that he's a prisoner for the Lord. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says the same thing, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Uh, the Apostle Paul is most likely in Rome. He's incarcerated, and he is literally chained, most likely chained to a Roman soldier. And, of course, many people believe that that's where Paul's getting this these metaphors. He's getting these metaphors. He's there. He is chained to a soldier. He sees a soldier. He's thinking about the soldier's outfit and thinking about his armory, and that's where the metaphors come from. And I bring this to your attention because I think perhaps the Apostle Paul was reminded about these things by looking at the Roman soldier, but I don't think that's where this comes from. And some of you might be wondering, what in the world does... Isaiah 11 have to do with the text that we've that the text we've come to what does Isaiah 11 have to do with Ephesians 6 well hopefully you kept your your insert in Isaiah 11 I want to show you a couple connections here that I think are really helpful it's a very famous passage we're told in verse 1 Isaiah 11 verse 1 there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Do you see these verses? And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. What is all that about? Well, who is Jesse? Jesse is the father of David. And a covenant promise is made to David in 2 Samuel 7. God comes to David and says, you know, listen, one of your sons is going to occupy your throne forevermore. And, of course, we recognize that's a messianic promise and Jesus fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. He is a son of David. So what we have here is a messianic prophecy. It's pointing to the covenant that God has made with David to send a Messiah who will be a descendant of David. And then in verses 2, and, uh, two well, verse 2 there, notice the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. There's the work of the Holy Spirit. Christ was anointed. Jesus, as per his human nature, was anointed by the, uh, by the Holy Spirit uh, without measure. John 3.34 tells us that it was without measure 
that he was anointed uh, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry uh, in his hometown in Nazareth, goes into the synagogue and he opens up the scroll and he opens up to Isaiah 61. And he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, right? You know those passages? Christ has been anointed without measure by the Holy Spirit with a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Verse 3, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now, this clearly distinguishes Christ, as per his human nature, clearly distinguishes him from any other leader. Christ's delight was actually to do the fear, or actually to do the will and work of Almighty God. He said his food is to do the will of God. You know, we might think of uh, whatever your favorite uh, favorite food is or whatever your favorite snack is you know that delight that you have uh, for some of us it's chocolate I don't want to tempt you or anything but you know you might think of Sarah's candies or you might think of Philadelphia candies or whatever that desire that we have for those kinds of things is what is in view here uh, Christ's desire was to uh, adore and worship the father by serving him that's what's meant by the fear of the Lord here uh, in this text. Verse 4. With righteousness he shall judge the poor. Decide equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And now look at verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness the belt of his loins. Here we've got this idea of a belt. Now, you've heard me make references to the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, if you will, or the Hebrew Scriptures. This was, this was translated a couple hundred years before Christ's earthly ministry. And when we're studying the New Testament, that comes up a lot because the biblical authors often quote from the Septuagint. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing in Ephesians 6. The Septuagint renders verse 5, uh, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and truth the belt of his sides or the belt of his loins, uh, if you will. And here we have this, this idea of a belt of truth. The belt of truth. Now, what's going on here? Isaiah is telling us that a Messiah is promised who will be a descendant of David he will be anointed with the Holy Spirit in an unusual way, really without measure. And as he comes to perform his, his function, as he comes to perform the office of redeemer and deliverer and mediator, he is going to take up a certain armor. And of that armor is going to be this belt of truth. Now, why is that important for us? It means everything for us. Because when the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 and verse 14 to put on the belt of truth, he is telling us to put on the same belt of truth that was worn by Christ Jesus. It's the same, one and the same. Christ Jesus is offering this piece of armor to you and to me. And it's tried and true, isn't it? 
Now, what exactly is it? We've got this connection with Isaiah. What exactly is this belt of truth? Well, it could be understood objectively and subjectively, and uh, that probably is not how it might be helpful for a couple of you, but that probably means nothing to some others. When I started reading this stuff many years ago, and I came to words like objective and subjective, and a lot of these philosophical terms, I'm like, oh my goodness, what in the world does this mean? Does anybody else have that problem? What does it mean, objectively and subjectively? Well, objectively, it's the truth. Truth, objectively, is the truth. It's the truth whether we believe it or not. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That sentence is true whether we believe it or not. In other words, truth actually does exist out there, and truth can be known. Someone, someone might say, well, that, that's true for you, Rick, but not necessarily true for me. Well, two and two is four. Do we all agree with that? Is two and two four, whether I believe two and two is four or not? You see, if you don't believe that's true, if you believe that two and two is only four in some people's minds and not two and two is four in other people's minds, then your cell phone wouldn't even work. What is your cell phone? It's a little computer. What's a computer operate on? Ones and zeros. On and off. You know? You know, electronics major. I've got to bring electronics into this once in a while. I don't do it that often. But this afternoon when you're doing a text message, you can be rest assured the fact that that text message is making it to the recipient who you desire to send the message to is proof that 2 plus 2 is 4. Whether you believe it or not, that text message is going to get sent. Objective truth is the truth. It's reality. Whether we agree with it or we don't agree with it. See, if we agree with it, we're in reality. If we don't agree with it, we've stepped out of reality. God created the heavens and the earth. That's an objective truth. You know, Stephen Tyler and the gang at Aerosmith have been asking this question for a long time. What is wrong with the world today? Well, as believers, we don't need to ask that question, do we? Because we have the objective truth of Genesis chapter 3. We have the objective truth of Romans 3. What happened in the Garden of Eden? Adam sinned and fell, and when Adam sinned and fell, all humanity sinned and fell with him, right? What is wrong with the, earth, with the world today? The ground is cursed. We have fallen into sin. We've been born into sin. That's how I can say, listen, we, you know, when we're born into this world, we're born into Satan's camp. I realize that's offensive. I didn't like it either when I first started hearing it, but it's the objective truth. And it needs to be stated in order for us uh, to make any progress in the faith whatsoever. So that's the objective truth. How does that help us against Satan's schemes? One of Satan's schemes is confusion and deception. Confusion and deception. I don't think we have a better example of this in the Bible than when Jesus is tempted in the, in the wilderness. You know, right after Christ's uh, baptism, this, you know, it's a confusing thing when you read it for the first time. Jesus is baptized. He comes, you know, right after his baptism, you hear the voice of the Father. You see, really, you, you, you see the, the, the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And you have this wonderful, victorious scene and right after that, the spirit of the Lord carries Jesus out into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and for 40 nights. I can remember being really confused by that. Why in the world? What's, why would the spirit of God lead Jesus out to be tempted? 
That's the answer to that. It's a story for another day. But what happens when Jesus is tempted? Jesus is hungry. He hasn't eaten anything in 40 days. That's about the length of time that the human body can go before permanent damage is done to the organs. 40 days. And what does Satan do? He comes and he tempts Jesus. He says, if you're really the son of God, you know, and he points to stones. He says, turn these stones into bread. And how does Jesus stand up to him? He's wearing the belt of truth. He says, man does not live on bread alone, but every word comes from the mouth of the Father. And Satan picks up on that. He says, okay, you're going to quote scripture. Okay, we'll quote scripture. He takes him up on the pinnacle of the temple. He says, there, throw yourself off. Doesn't Psalm 91 say that he'll, he'll protect you, he'll, send his, he'll dispatch his angels to keep your feet from smashing against the rocks? He's twisting scripture. That's not what Psalm 91 means. Study Psalm 91 this afternoon. You'll see that's not what it means. That's not what's going on. And Jesus, again, quotes scripture. He says, is it not written that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test? And then he takes him up on a high mountain. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world. He says, these will be yours if you just bow down and worship me. What's Jesus do in response? He's wearing the belt of truth. He's wearing the belt of truth. He says, be gone from me, Satan. You shall worship the Lord and him only. See how that works? But without the truth, what happens? Oh, yeah, I'm kind of hungry, you know. And those stones, yeah, I could, that'd be kind of cool, you know, turning them into bread. We're going to turn them into honey wheat, man. <laughs> honey wheat. Without the scriptures, without the belt of truth, we don't have a chance. We don't have a chance in these temptations. There's another way the belt of truth can be understood. It can be understood subjectively. What's that mean? Well, subjectively, it means simply the, the truth as it works and permeates in our hearts. And as we trust in the truth, we begin to walk in the truth. That's, that's as the truth changes our lives. You know, I, some commentators say that the, the belt of truth should be understood objectively. Some commentators say it should be understood subjectively. Other commentators say both. And I side with the ones that say both. I think... And what's in view here is both objective truth and subjective truth. Because if we have embraced the objective truth in saving faith, it's going to affect our lives. If we're, only, if, if we're only mentally assenting to it, see, that's the problem. If we're only mentally assenting to it, then we can know all this stuff's true, but it's made no change. It's made no difference in our lives. We're still walking with the world. We're still walking in the ways of the world. We're still thinking. The governing principle of our life is still something else instead of Jesus. So that's what it comes down to. But as we embrace the objective truth, the fact of objective truth is that, you know, at the end of our lives, we're going to have to give an account to our, of our lives to Almighty God. That's an objective truth. If we really believe that, that's going to make a change. If we really believe he's watching us, that's going to make a change. If we really believe he's good, if we really believe he went on the cross and died in our place, it's going to make a change. And as it makes that change, that's the subjective side of it all. And I think both are in view here. You think we have time to look at the breastplate of righteousness? Are we up to it? Nod your head. Yeah. I've had enough. You want to do one more? I think we can do it. When the Apostle Paul speaks about the breastplate of righteousness, 
You're already in Isaiah, I presume. Turn to Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. There's a scathing rebuke to the people of God in Isaiah 59. And of course, Isaiah is loaded with a lot of scathing rebukes to the people of God. In verse 2, he's, Isaiah says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That's what sin does. Verse 3, for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Verse 4, no one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief, give birth to iniquity. Skip down to verse 7, their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. Uh, verse 8, the way of peace they do not know. There's no justice in their past. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. If you skip down to verse 14, justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. Look at, look at the second part of that there. For truth has stumbled in the public squares. That sounds hauntingly familiar, doesn't it? Truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. The truth is lacking. You know, as we look around and we watch what's happening to our culture, we not, shouldn't necessarily think that it's anything strange. You know, the culture of Isaiah's day was highly immoral and was really uh, just run amok. Look at the um, second part there of verse 15. The truth is lacking. The second part, he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. You know, there's a lot of agendas in our culture today. And if you speak out against any one of those agendas, guess what? You'll be hunted down. You'll be hunted down. And it's a, it's a, that's one of Satan's strategies. He wants to silence you from speaking the truth. We have to resist that. We have to stand against that. That's where the belt of truth comes in, isn't it? You can see how the belt of truth will help us with that. Verse 16, beautiful verse. God saw that there was, or the end of verse 15 rather, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. Verse 16, God saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. What's going on there? It's, poet, it's poetry. God is looking around. There's no one to deliver these people. These people who are left to their own are going to destroy themselves. I'm going to do something. I'm going to come in the person of Jesus Christ. The power of my arm. I'm going to come with the person of Jesus Christ. And look at verse 17. He put on righteousness as a what? As a breastplate. And we might even look ahead a little bit. He put on a helmet of what? Salvation on his head. It's reputed that the Apostle Paul memorized the Old Testament. That he had it committed completely to memory. I don't know if that's true or not. But I've heard that many times. I've read that many times. And I think when he's chained to the soldier. Perhaps the the armory of the soldier, or perhaps the things of the soldier maybe brought these verses to mind, but I would submit to you this is where the metaphors are coming from. And this really, really makes a difference. Why? Because God's looking down at the situation. He's going to do something about it. He does do something about it in Christ Jesus. And he puts on certain armor, puts on the belt of truth, and he puts on the breastplate of righteousness. And when the Apostle Paul, again, when he calls us to put on the breastplate of righteousness, who's, 
Whose breastplate of righteousness are we putting on? It's Christ's. It's the very same one made available to us. What exactly is it? Well, Jesus comes. He's not born in sin like us. He's miraculously conceived in the womb of Mary, isn't he? Jesus is not born into sin like we are. He is not born into the devil's camp. He has always been in God's camp. And he lives a perfect life for 30 plus years. And he offers that perfect life at the cross to answer for justice for all of us, doesn't he? That's the gospel message. Now, a lot of times we hear a lot of noise about, okay, at the cross of Calvary, our sins are taken away. Our sins are taken away. And that's right. Make lots of noise about that. But don't stop there. Something else takes place at Calvary that we need to tell everyone about. An exchange is made. Our filthy life is given to Christ and his perfect and beautiful life. His perfect righteousness is given to us. Doesn't that warm your heart? There's no better illustration of this in the Bible, I think, than what we looked at in a previous study in Zechariah chapter 3, where Zechariah sees a vision of, of uh, Joshua, the high priest, and Satan's accusing him, making these accusations. And there, Joshua's in these filthy, dirty clothes, right? You remember that passage? And the Lord rebukes Satan and says, hey, what are you, what are you doing? What are you, what are you doing here? Accusing, accusing my, my high priest here, who I've plucked out of the fire. In other words, who I've plucked out of your camp. And then he's ordered, take those filthy clothes off of him and put those pure vestments on him. That's the breastplate of righteousness. That filthy rags. The best life we could possibly live is like filthy rags before God. It's filthy. It's dirty. Abandon it. If you're trying to earn your way into heaven, quit it now. It's never going to work. Joshua was holier than you are. And he couldn't stand. And why would we want to anyway when this perfect righteousness is being offered to us? This perfect righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ Jesus. How do we get it? We get it by faith. We get it through faith. How does that help us in the battle against Satan? Satan is an accuser. If you've been walking with Jesus for a period of time, you've blown it. And when you have blown it, it has grieved you, hasn't it? And you've thought, how could I have done what I have just done? And that's when he starts on you. That's when he starts on you. You're no Christian. Christian would have never done that. You think you're a Christian. You're no Christian. You think your heart's been changed? Look at you. Look what you did. Look what you think. Look at it. And on it goes, doesn't it? In varying degrees, some of us have a greater problem with this than others. There he is. He's accusing you and he's accusing you. The Apostle Paul wants you to be able to stand. How do you stand? This is how you stand. The same way Jesus stood with the belt of truth. What is the truth? Jesus washed me from this. That's the objective truth. He's offered me salvation. It's mine by the taking. If I take it, it's mine. If I receive it, it's mine. He's given it to me. I really want to follow him. I really want to follow him. 
That's the objective truth. Well, guess what? We can answer these accusations in our minds. We can answer these accusations in our hearts with the breastplate of righteousness. We can say, yeah, you know what, Satan? You're right. I am an abysmal failure. But I'm redeemed. I've been redeemed. And listen, Christ's righteousness is perfect. And the resurrection proves that, doesn't it? The resurrection proves it. Death had to acquit Jesus. They had to let him go. Why? Because he's perfect. That perfect beauty that God sees in Jesus Christ. Listen to me. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, he sees that in you too. And he sees that in me. And that's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. Amen? Heavenly Father, what do we say in response to such truths as these? Father, we see them, we read them in your word. Father, sometimes we struggle to believe them. We think they're too good to be true. We think there must be something else. There must be some hidden something. Father, we recognize that, Lord, you call us to yourself. You call every creature to yourself. Father, as as we place our faith and trust, our trust squarely in you, not merely storing up these facts in our heads, but putting our trust in you, turning from this wicked world and turning to you and Christ Jesus, that these things are ours, that the belt of truth is ours, the breastplate of righteousness is ours. And we see that we're called to walk in these things 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Father, what do we say in response to such a great salvation as this? Father, we say is we will serve you, O Father, uh, to the best of our abilities. We will try, O Father, to serve you. But, Father, we recognize that our efforts are not what saves us. Our efforts are merely just thanksgiving. Out of thanksgiving, Father, we walk with you. Out of thanksgiving, Father, we cling to you. We pray, O Father, for your help in these, in these things. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.